0: So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according
1: to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Last week, we started a series of messages that will serve as a broad descriptor for the second half of our study from the book of Romans. Uh, Life in the Spirit is our annual theme. We introduced that to you back in August, but it's also a great description of the vast majority of the content of Romans chapter 8 to 16. So last week, we began here in chapter 8 with a series of messages that are entitled the faith advantage. There are certain benefits and advantages and privileges that we enjoy as God's people who have been justified by his grace and indwelt by his Holy Spirit. And as we begin to study of chapter eight, you can kind of break it down into an outline that, uh, that gets me back, there we go, I, I got it here, um, that gets us to these, what these advantages are. Uh, acceptance and suffering, assurance, and security. These four advantages help us outline chapter 8. Now, you may look at that and say, how is suffering an advantage? But listen, all of us are going to suffer in this world, everybody. The the advantage to a Christian is that our suffering is redeemed, and we're going to see that when we get to that section of chapter 8. But last week, Randy kicked us off by introducing this very foundational advantage that we have that has the power to so affect the rest of our spiritual journey. It's that word acceptance. I can now experience divine acceptance. If we know that we have divine acceptance, uh, it changes everything. Our entire perspective of life the events of life, our place, our purpose in this world and God's kingdom are changed when we believe and understand and know that we have been divinely we have God's divine acceptance because we are loved beyond imagination. And so the question really becomes this, how can I know that I have this divine acceptance? How can I know that I am so loved by God and accepted by him that even on my very worst day, no matter what that day may look like, I'm not going to be rejected by him. How can I know that? Because if we have that squared away, so much of life will fall into its proper place. So last week, uh, Randy showed us that the first way we can know this is the testimony of God's Word, that God has told us that we are in Christ. We've been united to Christ, so we are in Christ. And because we are in Christ and have been united to Him, when God looks at us, even on our worst days, what He sees is His dear Son and the righteousness of His dear Son. And so this is who we are, and this union with Christ makes us, Eternally, absolutely unequivocally lovable and accepted by God. And next week, Randy's going to be back up here and he's going to be touching on verses 14 to 17 and bringing to us the beauty of the doctrine of adoption and the Holy Spirit's role and helping us to see ourselves as loved by God. But this morning, we are digging into verses 5 to 13. And these verses, they encourage us to look at God at how God is changing us and sanctifying us and transforming us of, as evidence of His acceptance. So we're going to dig into these verses this morning. Um, before we do, let me pray that God open our hearts. And as we pray, let's remember uh, Jared Honigman and the Honigman family and what's going on with them. Jared's been taken to a, the traumatic brain uh, injury center up in Jacksonville, and his therapy has begun there. Let's continue to pray for this young man, that God would raise him back up to full health. Heavenly Father, open our hearts and our minds this morning. Uh, be with the Honigmans. We know that they would much rather be here with us then up in Jacksonville, we pray for Jared, Lord. Would you touch his body? Give him full recovery. And this morning, as we study your word, would you allow us to, not, to, to understand what you're saying to us? Would you give us the grace that we need so that the person maybe who doesn't know Christ would be challenged to believe even this morning? And those of us who follow Jesus, that we would walk out stronger, differently, more grounded in the gospel than we came. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. So there's there's a couple of main truths in this passage and the first one is actually kind of a warning when it comes to this matter of acceptance. And it's maybe, maybe a negative. So we're going to start with the bad news and then we'll go to the good news, right? This first idea, though, is in verses 5 to 8, that it is futile for any of us to seek acceptance by God through self-transformation or through self-actualization or behavior modification or, or any of these things. Verse 5 says, "...for those who live according to the flesh..." You know there's there's very much a binary aspect to these verses isn't it? I mean there's there's no you know multiple choice categories here. There's there's two. It's very binary. You are either a person who lives according to the flesh or you are a person who lives according to the spirit. That's the two categories. Now In our day and age, we don't like this. We don't like this kind of exclusivism, right? We want multiple opportunities, multiple options, and we don't want to choose until the very last second just in case we miss out on something better, right? And so when God comes along and says, this is how I see humanity, you're either living according to the flesh or you're living according to the spirit. There's something within our age and the spirit of our age that goes, I don't like this. But this is what God says. All of us are born according to the flesh. All of us are born sinners. For all have sinned, Romans 3 says, and fall short of the glory of God. We are sinners because we are born sinners. That's part of our nature is to sin and rebel against God. We're born with a nature that wants to sin, loves to sin, and is hostile to God. Now you may be here this morning and perhaps you're not a follower of Christ and you're seeking answers. You may actually be here this morning because you're seeking good counsel on how to be a better person. You're interested in becoming a nicer, better, the best you that you possibly can be. And that's an admirable desire. But if that's you this morning and you're that kind of seeker, you know, you may not be an anti uh, Christian rabid activist or someone like what Joel mentioned earlier who just wishes religion would go away. You may actually be someone who's very open minded. Maybe you're tolerant, you're magnanimous towards Christianity because you're interested in spirituality. You might describe yourself as a spiritual person. And you want, genuinely want to be a good person who is nice and good to other people and to be accepted to God. But what you need to understand is that no matter how magnanimous you are, no matter how tolerant, no matter how open minded you are, even your benevolent disregard of Jesus is seen as hideously sinful to God the Father. And we need to recognize this, that no matter how much a person of the flesh focuses on transforming themselves and becoming the best person they can possibly be, ultimately, you will not become acceptable to God. You will fail. God says this through the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3, that the person who is seeking to be accepted by him along these ways, this is his verdict, their end is destruction Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds that are set on earthly things. We saw the difference between the person who's of the flesh, the fleshly person, and the spirit person, the person living according to the spirit, the person living according to the flesh. We saw the difference between these two people at the end of Romans chapter 7. At the end of chapter 7, the Apostle Paul makes this great cry from the depths of his soul. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of sin and death? Thanks be to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. The person who's living according to the Spirit identifies with the heart cry of the Apostle Paul. This is your cry on a regular basis. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of sin? Thanks be to God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Hey, listen, if, if that is not the cry of your soul this morning, I pray that you, will, that you will speak with, maybe at the end of the service, one of our spiritual counselors in our care area. Your greatest need is for God to open your eyes so that you can see who you really are in the light of our Creator. Your greatest need is to have a heart given to you by God that understands what is behind this cry of the soul of of this apostle. So this passage starts out with a warning. It's futile, It's futile to seek acceptance through self-transformation. But there's a second truth, a positive truth here, right? And and that is essentially our, our takeaway truth. And it's in verses 9 to 11, and it looks like it got a little flip there. It's the way that the way God is transforming us testifies to his acceptance of us. The way God is transforming us testifies to His acceptance of us. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. God's unequivocal acceptance of us is seen in the breadth and the depth of our transformation if you look closely at these verses here's what you see you see that these verses reveal the entire trinity god the father god the son god the holy spirit is invested in our transformation they're all here All three persons are referred to and all three are participating and involved in us being sanctified. This fact alone, right? This right here. I mean, to think about that, church. This fact alone should assure us that we are unequivocally, absolutely, eternally acceptable to God because the entire Godhead is consumed with conforming us into the image of Jesus Christ. Entire Godhead. And what the Godhead begins, the Godhead finishes and completes. Now, God transforms us, right? And in this passage, what we see is that God transforms us from the inside out through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Paul in 2 Corinthians describes it like this. He says, and we all with unveiled face... Beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is Spirit. It's God who's transforming us. He is absolutely committed to it, so much so that He has put the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, within us. 1 Corinthians 6 says, Do you not know that you've been bought with a price, that you do not belong to yourself, but that your body, that you are now the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you from God, therefore glorify God with your bodies. God is intent on transforming us. And He's doing this work. And He does that work for people who He has accepted and loved and redeemed. Now, how is he doing this? How is God transforming us? In this passage, there's two basic arenas of transformation that take place. The first, through the Holy Spirit, right? God is transforming our minds. Now, when we hear the word minds, we immediately think intellectualism, scholasticism, acquiring knowledge. And while it's important that we do acquire knowledge of God's word and doctrine and truth, that's just a part of it. Okay, The mind here is much larger. It includes the brain, but it's a much larger term than just intellectual prowess. You know, if you look back at verse 5 and 6, those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Verse 6, to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. That word, set the mind, or that phrase, it actually comes from one Greek word. And that word, neo means to give careful consideration to something. To intensely focus and embrace something. To take someone's side. To espouse someone's cause. And you see it used in different uh, passages of Scripture. You see it used negatively in Matthew 16. Jesus is rebuking Peter. And so Jesus turns and says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. In other words, Jesus was saying, Peter, you are not looking at what is happening here from the perspective of God, from the perspective of the kingdom. You're looking at this from the perspective of a human being who is enmeshed in this world. And that's what we have here. Setting the mind is seeing life. Seeing what happens to us. Seeing our purpose. Seeing this world. Seeing everything from God's perspective. Through God's prism. Through his paradigm. This is what it means to set the mind on the spirit. To see it from God's perspective. And then align our lives with that perspective. Now... This recalibration of our mind that is taking place through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, as wonderful as that sounds, that it is, it is also the source of so much of our tension as followers of Jesus Christ. And this is why we are wired to set our minds on the flesh. That is our natural response. And so the sin nature, which, whose power has been broken, its authority has been broken, but it is still residing and it is still strong, the sin nature tempts us in such a way to return to what feels natural. The sin nature tempts us to interact with certain things in our world, in our daily lives, and to interact with that situation by setting our minds on the flesh rather than setting our minds on the Spirit. And this tension that we have, this dynamic that is in our lives, is exactly what Paul was referring to at the end of Romans 7. Right before the verses that I just read, O wretched man, he says this, I've discovered this principle of life, that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's law with all my heart, but there's another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. So newsflash, you may be living according to the Spirit, you may be a follower of Jesus Christ, but you still have, and I still have, the potential to set our minds on the flesh. And we will bounce back and forth Even within the same day, between setting our minds on the flesh and setting our minds on the spirit. And this is why we have this tension. What does it look like, practically, when we set our minds on the flesh? Well, I think an important phrase in this passage is there in verse 6. It is that little phrase, life and peace. Life and peace. What preoccupies our mind so that we can have life and peace? What do we daydream about so that we can have peace, life and peace? What is occupying the center port of our lives so that we can have life and peace? Randy talked about it last week. We all want a good life. We want life and peace. The question is, what is preoccupying ourselves to get it? right? Some look to substances like alcohol and opiates for life and peace. Uh, Many of us have never struggled with substance abuse, but the dollar bill occupies the forefront of our mind and our lives, and we pursue it. For others of us, what we're preoccupied with is our careers, what we think will bring us life and peace is if our children become this paragon to parental success. Right? For many of us, it's what we look to for life and peace is our hobbies, <clears throat> recreation. Some of us, we even look to our football team for life and peace. And if you're a Jaguars fan, you haven't had peace for 20 years, like me, right? It's just the way it is. A bunch of losers. <clears throat> I swear. Disgusting. Right? <laughs> There's a real tension here, right? That we just can't ignore. <laughs> Have you ever had this? How do I reconcile the fact that I am so often preoccupied with fill in the blank? My job, my career, my kids. Money, my comfort, my fame, accomplishing goals. How is it that we can be so preoccupied with that, yet we call ourselves believers and followers of Jesus Christ? Right? I mean, it is a real tension. It is a reality of the Christian life. And for the believer, we struggle with these things. But the truth of the gospel and the promise of the gospel is that God, the entire Godhead, has taken up residence and he is gradually transforming us from one degree of glory to another degree of glory. So as a result of this, he is constantly reminding us to, to lift our eyes off the horizon of this world, to set our minds on the things that are above not look to the things of this world for life and peace, but instead look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Look, to, look and live for the things of the Lord, for his kingdom, for his glory. And this voice within us, this urge within us, greets, pounding this drum and bringing it before us. And when we get off track and we set our minds on the flesh, he is there to say, uh-uh, the most miserable person in this world is a Christian who is continually setting their mind on the flesh rather than the spirit. Because tension within you just becomes unbearable. See, here's what's going on. <clears throat> I was thinking about Joel and Stephanie and the fact that they're in Paris. And while he was talking, I, I kind of daydreamed a little bit. I mean, I heard it was a great presentation. And, but I was thinking, Paris, the Louvre. I'd like to go back to the Louvre. Haven't been in a while. And then I thought, you know, Catherine and I were supposed to go to Paris together in 2001 or two or whatever. I think it's 2001. And, and we didn't get to go at the last second. She had to stay home with MJ. And I thought, man, it'd be nice to take Catherine to Paris. Okay. That was, that was supposed to be amen, baby. A spiritual, <laughs> spiritual environment. Amen. Right? Right? I thought how nice it would be to take Catherine to Paris and go back to the Louvre. Have you, have, you know how it is to go to these nice, beautiful art museums, right? And when you go around, and, and we even saw one of them over here, that's a stained glass that, that Mark Diener did with our call to artist. You'll notice that on the frames, uh, on all of these different works of art, there's light, right? And most of the time, it's like a little lamp on top. You know what I'm talking about? There's a lamp on top. Can you nod your head or I'm going to just keep milking this thing? Okay, good. All right, there's a lamp on top of the frame and it shines light, bright light onto the painting. You know, when you go up to these paintings, you don't go, wow, what a neat lamp. That light is just gorgeous. Baby, look how white that light is. Maybe we should get some of these for the house. You know, you don't do that at all, do you? What grabs your attention when you go before that painting isn't the lamp. It's the canvas, right? It's the painting. It speaks to you and it, it inspires you, encourages you. It, it, it may make you go, what was this guy on when he did that? I mean, but most of the time, it, it draws out a response, right? Well, listen, in a very real way, this is the Holy Spirit. This is what he's doing. The Holy Spirit says in the book of John, he illuminates our minds. He is light. And, and we don't worship that light. We worship what the light is being cast upon. And the canvas in this case is Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is always turning our attention to Christ and the gospel and who Jesus is and what he has done. And he's making Jesus large in our life so that we can see him and worship him and be transformed into his image. So what does it look like to set your mind on the Spirit? It's more than just intellectual knowledge. It is a life and mind that is focused on Christ and His gospel and His kingdom and His purposes. And living in line with that. You know, the Holy Spirit brings to us the graces and the gifts that Christ purchased for us on the cross with his blood. And one of those gifts is our sanctification. One of those gifts is our transformation from setting the mind on the flesh to setting the mind on the spirit because now we live according to the spirit. And so we can't continue, set our minds on the flesh the way we used to do. And by his grace, We're learning more and more to fix our eyes upon Jesus on the things of the Spirit instead of the things of this world which can be good. They're good in their right place. But they can't be ultimates. They can't be what we look to for life and peace. And guys, church, this is really the difference between a person who is living according to the flesh and a person who is living according to the Spirit. An unbeliever, no matter how spiritual seeker you may be, the fact is, you're focusing on the things of this world to bring life and peace to you. You're making good things into ultimate things. Whereas a believer through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, is gradually learning to fixate on the things of God and rest and rely upon them to bring life and peace. So in this passage, the first way, the primary thing that's talked about, how is God transforming us? He is changing our minds, helping us renew our minds so that we can fixate on Christ and look to him for life and peace. But there is a second thing here. The depth and breadth of God's commitment to us and acceptance of us is seen, especially in verses 11, In verse 11, with this promise that what God is up to is more than just internal transformation. There is also the promise of a complete transformation. The inner man and the outer man will all be transformed at the second coming of Christ. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. You know, you may not know this about me. Confession time. I love vampire movies. I do. I've seen all of the Dracula movies. I mean, this is because I think when I was about four or five, my dad let me stay up late one night, and we watched Dracula with Bela Lugosi. Some of you old people started, yeah, okay, well, you, you just aged yourself, right? You just told on yourself, right? But Bela Lugosi, and, and I remember as a small child, which was probably totally inappropriate, but my dad had only been a Christian a couple of years, so cut him some slack. Um <laughs> You know, at the, at the peak of that movie, as Bella Lugosi with his eyes, you know, he's like drawing the girl in, and she's like, I never will forget this as a kid, at the peak of that moment, just as he's about to bite her or whatever, my dad reaches down, and he pinches my neck, and I went to the ceiling, right? Right? And parents, let's all admit it right now, we've all done that to our kids, haven't we? Or husbands, we've all done that to our wives at just the right time, yep, okay. So maybe that's what started it, I don't know. But I mean, I've seen all the Dracula movies, even the cheesy Dracula 2000 that was made in the 1980s. I went to the movies and I saw that. And and so it was inevitable that since Netflix just came out with a series called Dracula, that we watched it. And I was surprised Catherine watched it with me because she gets scared. I mean, she got scared at Goonies for crying out loud, when uh, one of our first dates, right? And so I was surprised she was willing to watch, but it was so well done. The the British channels, they make such great series like Sherlock. And so we were watching Dracula and it was really interesting at the end of, near the end, I won't ruin the ending for you, right? But at near the end, he has finally found this beautiful young lady who's going to be the perfect bride of Dracula. And at one point she is... Crying, and she's afraid of death, and she says, "I don't want to die. I don't want to die." And and Dracula, in this most tender moment, reaches up and he strokes her cheeks, and he says, "My child, you have been dying since the day of your birth." And I thought to myself, "Who knew that that Dracula was a Calvinist?" Right? <laughs> right? <laughs> Because there's so much biblical truth there, right? <laughs> that, that we've been dying since the day of our birth. And this is the reality. We have this beautiful gift of the Holy Spirit who now lives inside of us. We have the truth of the gospel. We're living according to the Spirit. We have this tension. And the reason why we, one of the reasons why we have this tension is, is because this beautiful gift is housed in a vessel that has been dying since the day of its birth. But the glory of the gospel is that's not the final chapter. The final chapter is that God is going to completely transform us so that the inner man and the outer man is perfect. He's going to transform this world so that it's been so blighted by sin and the consequences of sin are going to be eradicated because he will make all things new. Let's not miss that hope that is in the middle of this chapter. That this is our destiny, church, as a follower of Jesus Christ. So how do we respond to this? How do we respond? I would suggest that our response to God's transforming work is threefold, and it's in verses 12 and 13. Some very practical applications. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die, but if by the Spirit you put to death death, the deeds of the body you will live. Our response is threefold. And because I went to seminary, to Baptist seminary, it's alliterated for you. How's that? Because Baptists, we loved alliteration. I want to give you three words that'll help you understand what our response should be. Those words are recognize, resist, and rely. Recognize. Underline that expression. We are debtors. We have been brought into God's family. And by being brought into God's family, there are advantages and privileges to being in God's family, but there is also a responsibility to honor God by living according to the Spirit, by the power of the Spirit. Recognize that we have been bought with a price. We do not own ourselves. We are owned by Jesus Christ. We're obligated. We are debtors. Secondly, resist. Put a box around that phrase, put to death the deeds of the body. Those of you who were maybe raised on King James, it was the word mortify. Mortify the flesh, mortify sin. We need to recognize who we are, that we have this responsibility to resist, to wage war against the sin nature. that is so quick every day to induce us to set our minds on the flesh. And we have to recognize that we are at war with this aspect of our humanity. And we're called to fight, to be engaged. But we don't do this through our own power, through our own ability. And that's where the third word is so important, the word rely. That expression in verse 13 But if by the Spirit, not if by yourself or through your own giftedness and abilities, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body. We rely upon the power of the Spirit to live by the Spirit and set our minds on the Spirit, all of which happens because we have the Spirit. There are times in the Bible where it is not linear. Because the mystery of the gospel is so deep, it can't be linear. It's multifaceted. And there's this this beautiful circularity here. We're called to rely upon the power of the Spirit so we can live according to the Spirit and set our minds on the Spirit. And why do we even want to do this? Because of the Spirit. (laughs) Because He's in us, encouraging us, motivating us. And since this is the case, there's no room for some kind of of self-glorifying, self-reliant, pull-myself-up-by-my-own-bootstraps mentality. We do not put sin to death through a white-knuckling form of self-discipline. You cannot self-discipline yourself into the image of Jesus Christ. Not a chance. Sin, sin, dies within us when we rely upon the Holy Spirit to empower us to obey. And our obedience becomes the means through which he works, and he manifests his power. Now back in the 1600s, there was a great theologian. In fact, he's, he's, he's seen as maybe one of the greatest theologians since the early church. And he wrote a little book called The Mortification of Sin. It's less than 100 pages, but I'm going to tell you something. You can spend weeks reading this book. It is so rich, and it's all focused, really, on the truth of verses 12 and 13. To mortify the flesh, to put sin to death, not through your own power, but through the power of the Holy Spirit. That man's name, a Puritan, was John Owen. So I want to close by giving you just a few snippets from that book, which speak to this, which I think will, will help us understand The gravity, the importance of us cooperating with the Spirit and allowing Him to transform us from the inside out. This is what John Owen writes. He says, He, the Holy Spirit, works in us and with us, not against us or without us, so that His assistance is an encouragement to the facilitating of the work of sanctification. Not to be daily employing the spirit and new nature for the mortifying of sin, for putting sin to death, is to neglect that excellent succor or assistance which God has given us against our greatest enemy. If we neglect to make use of what we have received, God may justly hold his hand from giving us more. His graces as well as his gifts are bestowed on us to use, to exercise and trade with or to to put into work. Not to be daily mortifying sin is to sin against the goodness, kindness, wisdom, grace, and love of God who has furnished us with the principle or the power the person of doing this work. The vigor and power and comfort of our spiritual life depends on our mortification of deeds of the flesh. Do you mortify? Do you put sin to death? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it whilst you live. Cease not a day from this work. Read the last part with me out loud. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. May God add his blessings to this. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you so love us, that you have invested yourself through your Spirit and your Son into our transformation. God, give us hearts that are not only living according to the Spirit, but our minds, the entirety of our being, and our spiritual man is set upon the Spirit. Help us to rely upon you, Lord Jesus. Show us when we are drifting into human works of self-righteousness and trying to, to please you through our own efforts and abilities rather than dependence upon you. It's so easy, Lord, for us to get this out of whack. Give us eyes that can see. Make us sensitive to the leading, and to the voice, of your spirit so that we may be the church, the people that you want for Palm Bay. In your name we pray these things, Jesus. Amen.